You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Hey, do you need a financial coach? If so, let's work together. As a coach, I help you get structure around your finances, visualize your ideal life, whatever that looks like for you, and more importantly, put together a strategy to help you get there. A lot of people hire me because they want to pay off debt faster and more efficiently and boost up their savings or increase their credit score, and those are all awesome goals. Financial coaching just helps you because I hold you accountable the entire way. Yeah, for better or worse, we're kind of like we're married. So if you want to take the podcast concepts that you're learning here and apply those to your life with my help, then you need to apply for coaching at WhitneyHanson.com slash customized dash coaching. Once again, that's WhitneyHanson.com slash customized dash coaching. I am so stoked to work with you and help you reach your financial goals. Does tipping confuse the heck out of you? Like, do you get confused on like, how much should you be tipping? What's normal? Why the heck do we even tip? It doesn't seem fair. We are covering all of that and so much more in today's episode. And that's why I'm so excited to introduce you to Barbara Sloan. If you are not familiar with Barbara, she is the author of the book, Tipped, the life-changing guide to financial freedom for waitresses, bartenders, strippers, and all other service industry professionals. Barbara says she was a homeless teen who danced for dollars and definitely did not graduate from college. She is now a personal finance expert and money coach that spent two decades working in every imaginable position in the service industry all over the country. In addition to owning and running a badass woman-owned construction company in the heart of Manhattan, she helps tipped workers achieve financial freedom like she did. She's passionate about all all the amazing aspects of tipped work and also passionate about the crappy, terrible aspects of tipped work as well. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground. We're definitely going to cover common financial struggles for those in the service industry. This is for people that are working in that industry. We talk about how she learned everything she needed to run a multi-million dollar business from the service industry work where tipping in America came from, why the majority of retired service workers rely on social security for their retirement. We go into detail on what Barbara's rules of thumbs are for tipping standards here in America. A good reminder of why going out to eat and buying coffee and things like that are actually a luxury service and why we need to treat it as so. Best practices for increasing your tips if you work in the service industry and why you want to make sure you're claiming all of your tips 
Also, if you work in the service industry, this is such a cool episode. I know for so many people, they do rely on tips to survive. It's just a huge part of their, their lifestyle. And so if that's the case, I hope this episode is really impactful for you. So let's go ahead and talk about tipping the service industry and tips for those that might be working in this industry. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Barbara Sloan. Hey, Barbara, it is so good to hang out with you. Thank you so much for joining in. Whitney, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. First off, congratulations on your new book. What the heck? You wrote a book. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and why you decided to write it? Thank you so much. It's I, I, It's been a wild ride. I definitely, if you had asked me 10, 20 years ago, if I thought I would write a book, let alone a personal finance book, I would have said, you're crazy. Um how the book came about was probably 2016. Um, the world was kind of, you know, a political mess. Mm-hmm. And I did a media blackout for a year. I was just like, oh my gosh, my anxiety is too high. I can't deal with this. Um, and so I turned off everything. No social media scrolling, no no news, no nothing. And I just started listening to the sweet, soothing sounds of personal finance. Huh. And <laughs> realized through thousands and thousands of hours of listening that no one looked like me. No one was talking about the service industry. No one was talking to people about how to manage their money when they're living on tips or a fluctuating income. And I remember listening to one podcast and they were like, write the book you wish you had had. And I was like, that's really great advice because I'd had a ton of imposter syndrome. I was like, who am I to write a book? I can't speak for everybody. I have no college degree. I have no credentials. This is an industry that's highly educated and highly certified. And who am I to to talk about this? But then I realized like financial services and the financial industry, they've been around for a real long time. And if they're still ignoring this sector, this huge sector of people, there's over 5.5 million people working on tips in the US alone. And so if they're being left out by financial services and the personal finance community as a whole, then, you know, maybe, maybe it's okay for me to start talking. Maybe it's okay for me to be modeling this. I have my ideas of maybe why people don't talk about that, but I'm curious, why do you feel people aren't giving advice to people who do live on tips too? Like, why is it that that's not a common personal finance topic? I think as far as financial services, they often go where they see the opportunity to make money Mm -hmm. and they probably don't see this industry as an industry that one values the information that they're going to provide and two has the resources for them to make things like commissions. Um, Why the personal finance space doesn't necessarily talk about this is also, I think this is an industry that's highly educated and they typically come from that nine to five background, that college background, that get the 401k match and don't buy the latte background. And so they are often utilizing their own personal stories, which just don't happen to be that. That's fair. That's fair. I also feel like I remember when I was working as a nail tech, I did that for shoot like seven years and that pay was a hundred percent commission plus tips. And 
you rely on, you really do rely on tips. Like you look at your paychecks, you're like, oh, dang, like I wouldn't be able to pay my bills had I not had the tips. And so I remember how difficult it was to budget during that time. And of course you get good, you get your system down, but it was a little complex. Do you find that most people view it when they come to you for financial help? Are they just like, I don't even know what my income is. A hundred percent. I think that's a huge part of this industry is not understanding the income that they have, the potential that they have. Um, it uh, the first thing I always tell you know my coaching clients is that they have to track their income yeah. because that is something that is not happening. When you think about even people in the nine to five world, they're not tracking their expenses, hmm. right? That's another side of their income that they're not tracking. So if they didn't have their employer or their accountant or whomever telling them that they have to track their income, that they have to know their income, they probably wouldn't be tracking that either. Because look at the other side of the equation. They're not tracking every single cent on the expense side. Our industry just doesn't require that constant tracking. Um, and so you know, it, it sometimes you're throwing a dart at the wall when you're like getting around a tax time and you're like, how much do you think I made this year? (laughs) (laughs) For sure. It's like, not sure. Let's roll the dice. (laughs) Right. Or how much do I want to pay in taxes? You know, I think it's also, it's a feature and a hazard that sometimes you can back into your numbers in this industry. It is so true. Now we're talking about the service industry. Let's be a little bit more specific. So when we say the service industry, who who exactly are we talking about? Like what types of jobs or occupations? Yeah, I love talking about this with personal finance people because I use the analogy. It's like a brokerage account. When you are going to a brokerage, every account that they offer is a brokerage account. Yes. So when we talk about the service industry, every aspect of a job has service in some way. But when we are talking about it, we are talking about people who are making that $2.13 federal subminimum wage. We are talking about people who are in food and beverage, beauty and body, and transportation services. We are talking about people who don't have access to a employer-provided 401k, PTO, health insurance. Um, Those are the positions we're talking about when we're talking about the service industry. And likewise, when us in the personal finance space are talking about brokerage accounts, we're talking about those after-tax accounts. We don't explicitly say that, but that's what we mean. And so, yeah, the service industry is made up of people who work in bars, in clubs, in restaurants, in spas, in salons, in hotels, in you know Uber, in taxi drivers, maybe the movers. So it's those people that rely on tips as a large portion of their compensation. Most people don't understand that there is this third sector of work. They assume that there's the W-2 positions, that those nine to five positions where your employer is taking into account your roles, your responsibilities, your wages, your benefits. They handle all of that. And then there's self-employment where you're either a business owner, you're a gig worker, you're a consultant, maybe you have a 1099. Mm-hmm. And as and the business owner or the consultant, you are responsible for setting your own fee that is inclusive of your wages, your benefits, and business expenses. There is this third type of employment, which is tipped employment, where the employer is only responsible for that small portion, that sub-minimum wage, that federal $2.13, although in some states it's a little bit more. But then you as the employee are responsible for everything else. You're responsible for all of your benefits. You're responsible for setting up your systems. You're responsible for tracking and claiming your income, which is a 
number that is used to determine how eligible you are for some social programs like social security, mm-hmm. unemployment, whether you can get access to a mortgage, you know, all of those things. So there's this third type and it's not the employer's responsibility to set those things up. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's one of those things where what I see is a lot of people that are in the service industry tend to, I guess, think that they're really truly paycheck to paycheck and some truly are, that is, that is a fact, but they feel like they're extra paycheck to paycheck. So they don't even take the initiative to look into some of these other things because they're like, dude, I'm barely surviving. Like, I don't know how I'm going to do this anymore, but I'm curious, is that from, from the research that you've done for the book and just from your experience, are most people truly paycheck to paycheck or do they just feel like it because they're not paying attention to income and expenses? Yeah, I think a lot of people in the service industry are low and middle income, but I don't think they suffer from an income problem. Got it. I think that there are people who are in the service industry who are at the poverty level. Yeah. That's not my experience. And that's not the experience of a lot of people in the service industry that I know a big part of the problem was a lack of financial literacy and the fact that these benefits didn't do not exist for us. I remember a pivotal moment for me in writing this book was 2013. I moved to New York city with my wife. I had like $700 in my pocket and I got two jobs. I got a job working um, at Coyote Ugly, which if people, no way. yeah, if people don't know what it is, it's a bar where you sing and dance on the bar, you hit your patrons, you oh, collect fun. bras. It's a, It's a great time. And then I got a job working on Wall Street for an unregulated market, which was selling usurious loan products. It was like part trading floor, part independent sales. And it was was a terrible experience. I learned a ton about the markets. I learned a ton about financial services, but it was super toxic. And I was like, oh my God, I need to get out of this. And I decided I'm going to go back to construction because I have held two career paths in tandem where I have worked in construction and the service industry. I like to say dirt in the day and dirty in the evening. Um, (laughs) I love it so much. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And so I got a job at a construction company. I was employee number three. It's now a company that I own. And what I was put in charge with was setting up HR and the accounting and finance department. I had never, I'd worked in the service industry. I'd never had HR before. So I was learning from scratch. Like, what does an HR person do? What are the resources that they have? Oh, automation. What's that? You know, Mm -hmm. I was learning what a 401k was. I was learning what, how, how PTO supported the health and well-being of an employee. I was learning about all of these things. And on the other side, I was working for these really high net worth clients who were managing these renovation budgets that were in the millions of dollars. And they had what seemed like endless resources and watching their behavior and decision-making. It was sort of that aha moment where I was like, oh, it is this behavior and mindset and these systems that allow people to build wealth. And no one in the service industry has access to these things. And so I think, I think a big part of the reason that people in the service industry feel paycheck to paycheck is because they don't have these systems in place, these safety nets. And so when, and and some of it's not even just feel, some of it's a reality of when you don't have emergency savings fund, you're more likely to enter and re-enter the debt cycle. Right. And so, yeah, I think that that's a lot of of what we see. That makes a ton of sense. So walk us through your experience or your entry point into the service industry 
like I know for me, it was snow cones. That was my first job. <laughs> and I, I ate way too many than I sold. I'm pretty sure, but it was great. I loved it. Like I was like 14 and slinging snow cones and had a great time with it. And then of course, serving and then being a nail tech, but I'm curious, like what were some of the jobs that you experienced within the service industry? And did you have any like favorite jobs? Yeah, I started when I was, I guess, 10 or 11. I had a paper route and I remember what? around the holidays getting like, I had a couple of blocks near my, near my, the, the block where I lived. And I remember around the holidays getting dollar bills or $5 bills and thinking, so cool. oh my gosh, I'm so rich. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I loved that easy access to cash. I loved the, the tangible nature of getting it and counting it and taking care of it. And, um, then in high school, I had a ton of jobs and I worked and I don't know if people know this, but it's an A&W, which is like a hot dog and a root beer stand where the waitresses were on roller skates and they would take out your hot, like car hop style. Um, and so I worked there. And then at 19 is kind of when I got really into the service industry. I moved out to California and I started waitressing and doing, I was a cater waiter. I was answering Craigslist ads. This is before you thought you were going to get murdered on Craigslist. So I was like showing up <laughs> totally. to all, I was showing up to all sorts of random gigs, like very, very random stuff. Um, and that's sort of how I got into dancing and bartending as well. was just sort of like being like, I'm down for whatever. That's so cool. I like your, it seems like you just, you're open to trying different jobs and occupations. I think that's so cool because it gives you so much breadth of knowledge in all of these different industries where somebody that, like you mentioned, has that standard nine to five corporate job, they can't necessarily relate to the struggles or some of the challenges or the nuances of the service industry. So I think it's so cool that you've tried so many different jobs and bring that to your coaching clients and your book to help others. I just, I love that. Yeah. I also tell, you learn, you probably know this when in working in, you know, in the nail tech industry, you learn so many skills when you're dealing with the general public on a day-to-day basis. You learn, you know, you're managing the beginning, middle, and end of a creative process. You are doing back-of-the-envelope math all of the time. I I like to tell my clients everything I know about business in running a successful multi-million dollar business in Manhattan, I learned waiting tables. Yes. How to deal with problem solving, how to deal with time management. Every single thing I learned in the restaurant industry, in the service industry. It's so true. I, I think that I do feel very similarly. It, I feel like a lot of times in the service industry, I view it so much more as entrepreneurship where you're you're constantly looking at sales skills. How do I increase my dollar value? How do I stay productive? How do I get new clients that come to see me? Like all of that stuff. Yes, you are working for somebody else, but you're kind of working for yourself in a lot of ways. And so I, I do find that to be very relevant too. I agree. Yeah, the sales, definitely you learn that skill set. Networking, how to have conversations with all different types of people, how to manage coworker relationships, how to manage managers, right? You're just dealing with so many resources. Yeah, agreed. Let's have kind of a philosophical conversation about tipping in general. I know people love it, hate it. It's kind of all everywhere in, in between. But where did the tipping industry, where did this even stem from for us in America, I should say? And in, yeah, in the US. So tipping was brought over from Americans who went to visit Europe and they thought it was really aristocratic. And so they came back and they started, they started the small tipping practice, but it wasn't popularized, popularized until after slavery. So when 
people were released from slavery and they went into the workforce, employers realized that they could use tipping as a loophole to hire people who had been formerly enslaved and continue to profit off the backs of Black, brown, minority, uneducated people. And most of that work happened in restaurants and in railroads. So railroads were initially a tipped industry. Eventually, railroad workers went on strike and they got, um, they're now part of the traditional sub, uh, the traditional minimum wage. They're not part of the sub-minimum wage anymore. They, they went on strike for benefits and now they are just part of the normal, normal workforce. Whereas tipped employees are still part of that separate sub-minimum wage that is $2.13, which is just like laughable and insulting at this point. Um, and yeah, so it's it comes from a really problematic history, but it's been around for over a hundred years. And it is the system that so many people rely on and really shouldn't have to defend. <laughs> and so, so yeah, people shouldn't feel shame about how they make money and they shouldn't have people who are who they're waiting on <laughs> make right. them feel bad about how they earn their their income because it's been in place for a really long time. Also, the the at least on the restaurant side, I'm I'm not sure about you know beauty and body services, but it's a hard industry with very slim margins. You see restaurants, bars, clubs going out of business all of the time. It is a very tough industry to run a business in. These employers are not used to having the expense, the added expense of an HR person, of dealing with compliance measures for having the standard benefit package, of, you know, being able to support an employee with additional benefits like health insurance. It's it's a lot of additional costs and a lot of the reasons that we enjoy this industry. We love our local restaurants, our local bars, our local beauty body services. Nine Over 90% of our service industry businesses are mom and pop style. And with that means that they don't have the infrastructure or the finances often to support the benefit system that most people in this country enjoy. Do you feel... I always go so back and forth on this. I I never know. I'm like, is that good? Is that bad? I really don't know. And I always go to, okay, well, what are other countries doing? And I know that it's not true, but it feels like other countries primarily do not tip. And so when we travel, we're like, don't tip. Whoa, this is weird. Is that actually true though? No, it's not true. A majority of countries, at least developed countries, have tipping cultures. Um, I just posted a really helpful infographic of, it's a map of the globe that has the standard percentage of various countries and what their tipping standards are. That was, um, it was actually put out by TripAdvisor. Um, And they dug through all their forums from local guides and locals on their tipping standards and put together this really helpful infographic that's separated by restaurants, taxis, and hotels and how you tip in those, all of those situations. And over one third of countries, developed and undeveloped countries, have a standard tipping of 10%. So it is definitely not just a U.S. practice. It's very global. I have a lot of mixed feelings. It's an imperfect system like most other things. But when you talk to the workers and you talk to the business owners in this industry, what you realize is that they want tipping to remain. Yes, they need a higher minimum wage. This sub-minimum wage doesn't work for anybody. And and it's, it's, it's certainly not an acceptable 
amount. And so we're seeing a lot of states increase that or do away with the subminimum wage at a state level. Mm -hmm. Um, So things definitely have to change, but what workers want is tipping. And what businesses say is that tipping is good. And I always like to ask people like, when's the last time you had a really great time with a train worker? Probably not. (laughs) No, no. I'm like sitting there thinking about never that I'm aware of. Right. Because part of what makes our service experience is so enjoyable is that our employees of these industries, they love that, that tension. They love that. There's no, there's no limit to what they can earn. They like to know that it's based on their performance and that they excel and they, they're, they're masters of bringing up the energy and vibration of an establishment. They mm-hmm. know and are confident in their skills of being able to excite and thrall and entertain people. And, they know that they want that opportunity to earn based on the experiences that they're able to provide. And so that's one thing I like to advocate for when I'm talking to people is that people in this industry, they like the tipping component. The business owners like the tipping component. Does it need to improve? A hundred percent because majority of solely majority of people who are retired from the service industry rely solely on social security. What? And that is terrifying. The average social security check in 2020 for people who claim their income in full, which reminder, our industry does not, was $18,000. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If you can't imagine surviving this world on less than $18,000, then you're going to, it's going to be bad. This industry ages into the most economically disadvantaged population in our country. So yes, things have to change, but doing away with tipping is not how that changes. So help us not be assholes. How do how do we approach tipping? Like, is there a standard that we should at a baseline tip here in in America? And then if it's like really great service, like what are your own rules of thumbs, especially working in that industry historically? Yeah, I first want to recognize everyone's experience that tipping feels like it's changing and it's popping up everywhere. Right. Like, I feel like people are like, oh my gosh, everywhere I turn, there's an iPad asking me for a tip in every single situation. And it's like, yes, 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 yes. But the same, many of the same rules still apply with a few additional considerations. Okay. So the last few years have been really challenging. We've seen a lot of inflation in prices without much change in those wages. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Let's say that you're tipping at a restaurant, bar, club, a food or dining experience. The old range was 15 to 20%. Tipping below 15% is never acceptable because those people have to, they often have to tip out. There's other expenses. Tipping 15% is a minimum. I, I always like to say, unless you're stabbed, spit on, or sued, tipping below 15% is unacceptable. Um I like to give the new range of 15 to 25% because of things like inflation, because of the increase of cost of healthcare, because of what we now know about how these people are limited in their access to benefits and mm-hmm. other social safety nets. So I like to encourage people 15 to 25% is the new range. You can absolutely base it off of your experience. If you're having a terrible experience, you don't have to be quiet about that. You can still engage with your server, your bartender, your stylist, and or even a manager and have them correct that. 
businesses want your repeat business. They want your feedback. You know, I know that there's a lot of this whole like, oh, don't be a Karen, don't ask for the management. You know, it almost feels like people are being told that they can't have their voice, but your voice is still important in this in this industry because this industry is propped up by locals. It supports our real estate economy. It supports so many other industries. And so you have to be an active and engaged consumer in this industry. Mm. And, and that is being vocal when things aren't going right. And also being vocal when you see tipping practices that aren't acceptable because it hurts the rest of the industry. If you're rolling up to a restaurant and someone's iPad flips around and the standards for tipping are 30, 40, and 50%, no, grab that manager and say, you know what? Come on. Like that doesn't feel good to have those as my tipping options. You know, it needs to be, it needs to be within range and you absolutely should call out bad actors because they ruin the industry for the good, hardworking people that are in it. So 15 to 25% is usually a good rule of thumb for people in, in restaurants. Um, if you're in a takeout situation, I think this is where a lot of people are feeling the tension with all these new yes. iPads. Yes, yeah. this is me. Yeah, so my rule of thumb is typically 10% or a couple of bucks, depending on okay. what your takeout situation looks like. Are you just grabbing a pizza at the counter service and there's nothing like maybe you don't feel obligated to tip in that situation and mm-hmm. that's fine. Most people who are working counter service are not part of that sub minimum wage. They're getting the regular minimum wage. And so the little tip jar that's on the counter or the little iPad, it's just a little something extra. Maybe they packed you a bunch of napkins and red pepper flakes and ranch dressing and, you know, cutlery and all of these things or you asked for some extra sauces. Mm-hmm. then that might be the opportunity where you go ahead and give a few extra bucks because they're young kids and they're hardworking and they went above and beyond. I always like to say that tipping should feel good. It should feel like you're getting to participate in somebody's livelihood and you're getting to participate in a luxury service that you are engaged in. For people who feel like they're tight on budget right now, there's so many other options for you than going to a service-based establishment. Have a picnic, have a potluck, go to the grocery store, get a container of ice cream, scoop your own ice cream, make your own coffee. These yeah. are luxury services. And when you go out somewhere and you don't tip, that means you are forcing somebody to work for free. And that is very problematic. Yeah. I love that you reiterated that it is a luxury service because I think so often it's so normal for people just to go out to eat or to grab their coffee in the morning that we don't even, we view it as almost like grocery shopping in a way, which is so wrong that we we do need to almost step back and say, this is a luxury service. I really like that reminder. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then rules of thumbs for beauty and body service. I mean, yeah. I'll let you, I'll let you speak to this. You oh, were a shoot. sales technician. What did, what, what did you enjoy? Usually, so the salon that I worked at, a pedicure was about $45 to $65, and that was an hour-long service. The tips that were standard were $10 for that service. The tips that were awesome were $15 to $20. When we got that, we're like, damn, like this is great. You know, it was really great. And so I would say that that was in the salon that I worked at, that was pretty common. But I think, you know, a manicure, five, 10 bucks. It, it goes a long way. It really does. Yeah. What I'm seeing, one of the things that I think that has also changed in the tipping world for beauty and body services, it, it used to be that you didn't tip the owners of establishment. That oh, rule right. has changed. If you own an establishment or you're say somebody, you're a traveling yes. masseuse, you're a traveling nail technician, 
though you still, the rules now are that you tip owners. Yeah. And that is something that has changed. And that is so true. I also think that this is an, the beauty and body service industry is one that needs an additional layer of consideration because I think for a lot of people, their pricing has stayed the same over the course of a number of years. Whereas people who are in the restaurant, bar, club industry, when the drinks and the food increase in price, then when you're tipping based on a percentage, the tip is increasing automatically. Whereas people in beauty body services, when they're at a fixed amount and maybe they haven't raised their rates in a few years because they're scared of losing their clients or they're they're super aware of the fact that everyone's struggling. Um, maybe if you're seeing somebody in beauty and body services and you're seeing their price not increase, it might be the time for you to up your gratuity. Or it might be the time to have a conversation with them where you say like, hey, you have not increased your price in a while. Like the world is changing. and And it's probably time for a price increase. That reassurance might be, it might be what they need. Yeah. I I so agree with that. Let's, let's speak to directly the people in the service industry currently. Do you have any good best practices for increasing your tip amount or like maybe providing better service? Are there any like little tricks that you like to do that you think make a big difference when it comes to their income? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a chapter in my book where it talks about how to increase your income. And a lot of it is all of the rules and tips that you learned when you first entered the industry. And for people who've been in there a long time, they probably need to go back to the basics. So it's things like selling, upselling, um, which no one wants to hear, no one wants to do, but it does make a big difference in your check amounts and your check averages, certainly in beauty and body service as well. If you are giving a massage, ask them if they'd like to continue. Most people who are in the throes of a massage don't want it to stop. So go ahead Heck no. and, yeah. and ask them if they want another 15 minutes, another 20 minutes. It's a great way for you to increase your tip. I think the pandemic was also had a big impact on a loss of community, a loss of connection with people. And more than ever, there's like an epidemic of loneliness. So I think being that smiling face, giving that warm greeting, being close to the door, being close to your guest, it has a bigger impact now more than ever. So I think making sure that you are in a good place to be giving that kind of, that level of service. So that means putting boundaries in place for yourself. It means, you know, resting before you're going into a shift. It means you have to take care of yourself so that you can take better care of your guests. And when you take better care of your guests, the money will come. Fair enough. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. From an income standpoint as well, I know there is that age-old question of, do I claim my tips? Do I just like hide it a little bit? Like, Of course, this is a financial podcast, so I'm going to say always claim everything as income if it comes into you. But I, I get that that's not always the case. But from your perspective, is there benefits to claiming all of our tips as income? Should we like not maybe claim a portion? Like, What are some of the best practices here? So the law is that you have to claim all of your tips. But yes, when I look at other industries and all of the benefits they get from pre-tax benefits, such as health insurance, which is like, on average, it's like 15% what you, what you save. If you wanted to not claim up to 25%, which is also subsequently, I think, what keeps you out of federal prison. Um <laughs> Noted. <laughs> no kidding. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think 25% is, is the range you want to stay, stay at. <laughs> if, if you don't want to go to prison. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, yeah. you know, consider that a pre-tax benefit. I don't think anyone in the industry would 
fault you for that considering all of the other things. Um, but you want to be claiming 75% or more of your income at the very least for mm-hmm. things like making sure that you have access to unemployment, making sure that you are putting money into social security, making sure that if in the event you were thinking about buying a home or you had some sort of opportunity where you needed to get financing that you would still be getting decent enough rates because you would qualify based on your income levels. So claiming your income is very, very important. Um, More important, I think, is tracking your income. But yes, I think claiming your income is definitely something everyone needs to be doing. And I'm not a CPA. I'm not an attorney. I can't give legal or tax advice. But yeah, I mean, if you held a little bit back because you're like, I'm owed this based on all of the other benefits that every other type of worker gets, I wouldn't be mad at you. I would understand. Well, and I always tell people this too, when, whenever people are, get on their high horse and like, you should claim it all as income. I'm like, dude, when you were like, say 16 and you were being a nanny and you're babysitting, did you claim that as income? No, but you should have, but you didn't, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like, it's kind of one of those things where we all kind of know it happens and we're just like, okay. But I do like that you mentioned the perk of claiming that as income, because I will say when I bought my house and I was working as a nail tech on a commission job. So I'd have two full years of income. Mm-hmm. I was so glad that I did because it had I not, I would not have qualified for my home. So I was really, really grateful that I did claim that as income, but I like your tracking piece. How do we track? Is this like a spreadsheet, a notebook? What do you recommend? Yeah. Everyone has a different method of what works for them. Um, I personally love Excel. I like to, for people to utilize Excel because I think Excel is like our brains. Like everyone's Excel spreadsheet looks a little different, but it's all just kind of how your brain thinks about things. And I think that's, what's beautiful about Excel is that you can like move pieces around to shift, shift in how you think. Um, I also like adding tabs because then you get to see how you've grown and changed over the years. Um, But if you're an app person, cool. If you're a notebook person, cool. There's really no right or wrong answer. It may take a few different times and a few different methods for it to stick. So I would just say start with something and iterate as you go as you go along. That's fair enough. Okay. From an expense standpoint, when you are living on a variable income, and it kind of fluctuates here and there. Maybe it's seasonal. Maybe it's just, you know, however many hours you get during one week or just the way people are tipping in general. How do you start to find some type of a norm so that you can, do you have to like keep your expenses really low? Do you have to worry about that? Like, how do you approach the the expense standpoint? Yeah, I think you have to remember there's two ways to budget. You can budget off of your income which is what most people do, or you can budget off your expenses, which is another way to, if if your income is fluctuating so much, then you can just look at your fixed expenses and come up with some buffers in the other areas. And that's your budget. And one of the other tips that I give people, I especially give this to people who work in sex work um, because they need multiple accounts is set up an account where you keep all of your incoming money, and then you can pay yourself in regular intervals and fixed amounts from that separate account. Now, it may take you a while to build up the buffers in that initial account to be able to get something regular. But when you start tracking your income, you will see trends. For a lot of people in the industry, like you said, there's a lot of seasonality. For people who work in club atmospheres, summers, sporting events, those are slow times. Whereas if you're a bartender who has you know access to a patio, summers are going to be great. Mm-hmm. So it's it really depends on what establishment and type of work you're working in and what the trends of that employment look like. You will see trends. 
Okay. And once you start to see them, then you can make, the, again, it's highly personalized, but you can absolutely budget on a fluctuating income. Okay. That's good to hear. Does it take, if we're tracking our income and our expenses and we're really paying attention, how long do you find that it takes to find those patterns? I think you can start to see patterns in just a few months. I I think budgeting is is a great tool, but I also think it's really hard to do it for a very, very long period of time, especially in great detail. And I think that in one of the things that the people in the personal finance space we 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 do poorly is we always scream budget, which yes, it's so important and it's good information, but sometimes doing it at an extreme level is not sustainable for a long period of time. So the first thing I like to tell people when you're budgeting is it you don't have to budget forever. This is not forever that you have to be keeping track of this. This is an information gathering process for us. And once we get information, we can put systems in place where we can step back from this level of detail. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the anti-budget. Like I love setting sending money into my savings, sending money into my retirements and then just knowing what I have to work off with for the rest of the month. Um, I'm a big fan of that for people who work a lot of jobs, who have a lot going on. And I think it's, it's, it helps you not get into, into the weeds. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think it is one of those things too, where if you are paying attention for a little bit of time, you pick up on those patterns, like you mentioned, and you start to see what's normal for you. So for me, I don't have to monitor my eating out or my coffee intake. Like I already know what I spend. I'm a creature of habit. I'm super boring. I do the same crap every day. Like it's fine. So I already know how much money I'm going to spend. So I don't actually have to like go into detail. And, you know, I went to this coffee shop for $5 and 67. Like, I don't, I don't do that anymore, but I do think that first initial activity of like really paying attention is so critical. I like that you mentioned that. Yeah. And, and let's say you only do three months or six months of tracking, I'm still a big fan of like, let's multiply those numbers for the full year and see what that looks like annually. And then kind of saying, does that align with our values? Am I spending? Because mm-hmm. I think for people in the service industry, especially those in restaurant bars and club environments, one of the big things that they find they're spending on is the cost of winding down. So whether it's going out after a shift, whether it's eating out because you've spent your full day serving somebody and now you need to be served because the last thing you want to do is go home and cook a meal for yourself after you've done all of this for other people, then you just have to do it with intentionality, right? Like you hear a lot of people in the personal finance space, like, oh, eat out less, drink less, you know, don't buy the latte. But for people in this industry, a lot of those purchases are a cost of working. And you just have to consider them a cost of working and know that, you know, this may be a value to you at this time. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense too. Where does everybody go to get a copy of your book? Is there like a best place? Where do you recommend? It's on Amazon. I think that's an easy place for a lot of people. I like to make things as easy as possible. You can go to Amazon. You can type in tipped. You can type in tipped book. Uh, Hopefully it pops up. Um, It's not, I haven't done my Ingram Sparks launch yet. So it's not available at libraries yet, but that's in progress and hopefully oh, yeah. around the corner. Um, that's so, so yeah. fun. You can and also then, find it at my website, which is www.tippedfinance.com, which I also do one-on-one coaching for people in the service industry. If you own a bar, restaurant, club, beauty, body service, I will come and do a talk for your staff. Uh, financial literacy is one of those things that helps you reduce um, turnover and increase retention. So I'm, I'm, I love doing employee talks and corporate events. 
That's so awesome. And then you're you're on Instagram and on TikTok, correct? Yep. At tipped finance on all the socials. I mostly hang out on Instagram. I try to do an occasional meme just because I think that we all approach finance with a little too much jargon, a little too much seriousness, and we can make it a lot more digestible and fun. I like that you do that too. I definitely enjoy your content. So before we officially part ways, Barbara, are you down for some rapid fire questions? Ooh, yeah. Okay. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Great. Let's do it. So the first question for you is what is one purchase you recently made that has made your life better? Ooh, probably I I just bought a Kindle paperweight so that I can read outside, um, which has made life a lot more fun. That's so fun. Okay. That leads me perfectly into the next question. What's one book you find yourself gifting most often aside from your own, of course. Um, so this one I finished a couple months ago, it's called come as you are by Emily. Oh, last name starts with N, but if you are a person in a body, I feel like this should just be mandatory reading. We, as people deal with a lot of shame around finances, around our bodies. And this is just a great book for people who are in partnerships, people who've dealt with body shame. Oh, it's just a fantastic book. Nice. Okay. I have not read that. So I'm adding that to my list. On my Kindle. I need to get one, actually. That sounds kind of nice. <laughs> when you said that, I'm like, maybe I should go buy a Kindle. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice to read outside. And like it, you know, you don't want to like always remember your book. So it's nice to kind of just already have it in your bag. And it's so small and light. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm really into it. I like the separation of devices, too. Instead of always reading on your phone, it's like you can have something that's only designed for reading. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Okay. My next question for you, where's one location you're dying to travel to? Oh, Vietnam. What would you do? What do you want to see there? So both my um, wife and I have parents who served in the Vietnam war. And I think we both kind of want to go back there for like the historical context and to just kind of get it. I've had a a lot of people I know go there and visit and just truly fall in love with like the landscape and the people and the culture. And I I just want to absorb all of it. It's pretty, my partner is Vietnamese and we just got back from Vietnam. We spent two weeks there. So when you go, let me know and I'll give you all the tips. Oh my gosh. I will, I will give you a full spreadsheet to fill out. (laughs) Done, done and done. (laughs) All right. Last question for you. In your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? Hmm. I think the, the secret to financial success is just to find your own personal way of doing it. Um, when you follow other people, you're traveling down roads that are known. And like, if, in order to discover a life for yourself, you really have to, to find your own way. So I encourage people, find your own way. It's okay. Uh, that was such a fun way to wrap up this conversation. Barbara, thank you so much for your time. It was really good to learn from you and hear some of your your experiences and just general best practices with tipping. I really do appreciate it. Whitney, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. All right. What'd you think of the episode? I know I definitely learned a ton. If anything, I think the most impactful thing for me was the importance of tracking your income if you work in the service industry. I'd love to hear from you. What stood out to you? What were some of your takeaways? Do me the biggest favor and tag me on Instagram. I'm at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co. And let me know that you're listening in. Come say hi and let me know what your takeaways were. 
If anything, just say hi. I just like to see who's listening in. All right, that is it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're having a great week and I'll see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds Podcast. Bye. Bye.